Welcome to Innovations of Health, a podcast that gives you the latest in healthcare trends and news. We'll be sharing advances in digital technology and breakthroughs in healthcare that eases people's way and provides a better healthcare future for all. Welcome to our broadcast. I'm your host, Bethany Bick, Senior Digital Strategy Manager at the Providence Digital Innovation Group. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for informational purposes only. For any medical questions, please reach out to your primary care provider or healthcare professional. Let's get started. Joining me today uh, for this live event will be Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder and CEO of Grapevine Health. Welcome, Dr. Lisa. Hi, Bethany. Great to see you. You too. So to get us started, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to start Grapevine Health? Sure. I'm an infectious disease doc, but I trained in public health at the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And in that in that uh, role, I had the opportunity to interact with all sorts of folks from the public, conduct research, um, lead field investigations. And so throughout my career, I've recognized one thing that's sort of a thread running through all the activities I was engaged in or all the concerns um, I was hearing from community. And that is how the language of health and healthcare is very complex and somewhat intimidating. And one day I was out um, doing a community session, a town hall meeting, and a gentleman walked up to me afterwards and said, how does someone like me access someone like you on a regular basis? And I, I heard this from patients from time to time as well, wanting more support to understand their own health or what doctors were saying to them. So health literacy, which is what we focus on, health literacy and engagement in healthcare is the ability to understand health information. But we talk about it a lot from the perspective that patients or community members don't understand health information, but actually it's on those of us who work in the healthcare system to provide the support people need uh, to understand the language of healthcare and how to navigate it. So that's why I started Grapevine Health. And we are a tech-enabled health media company. We produce content that's educational, but also entertaining and relatable. Uh, most of our work is for uh, underserved communities who are often left out um, of a lot of the um, innovation that's happening in healthcare. So it's been quite a journey. We're about two years old um, with lots of great things coming up for the company. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into some of that. And so tell me a little bit about the connection between the grapevine then and then what you're talking about from a health literacy perspective, because I think uh, the story behind why you named it that is really interesting as well. Yeah, so the grapevine, you know, all of us communicate through the grapevine, whether we name it that or not. So this is grapevine, like I heard it through the grapevine. And what I recognized as a clinician, but also as a researcher or being in community talking to people, is that people get trusted health information from people they know, people they trust. So at the dinner table, at the bus stop, the street corner, or maybe they have a relative who was in the hospital and then that person becomes the family health expert. So that's how uh, people are getting a lot of their health information. And some people are not um, engaged consistently with the healthcare provider, so they do the best they can uh, to find health information. And so because trust, you know, trust is so essential to improving health outcomes, 
that's why we wanted to ensure we were in these community conversations. We were listening and we were taking that information to create content uh, people could connect with. So the name Grapevine Health is actually related to this notion that people get trusted information from familiar sources. And we want to become a, a familiar source. So we're building a brand as a trusted resource for health information. Yeah. I know we had a conversation with you a few weeks ago, too, where the, the, the distinction between trusted and truth came up, which I thought was really interesting as well, because a lot of people may trust what they hear from their mom or their aunt, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's even factual. And so I think the way that you get into the community to kind of build on that trust, but then address where there's maybe some misinformation or misconception is really interesting. And, you know, the pandemic has been it's been so humbling to interact with people throughout this pandemic because people, this notion of trust versus truth, uh, it's a really good point because I had a woman tell me when I asked her, well, where do you get trusted health information? And she says, well, I'm not sure. It depends. And sometimes if I like you, then I'll believe what you're saying. I don't care if it's true or not. And, and I think we see that a lot, especially with our vaccine messaging right now. Um, you can go to our YouTube page at Grapevine Health and you'll see uh, some of the comments on our videos. We don't always turn off the comments because I think it's important to hear what people have to say. But there are some comments that suggest oh, these vaccines don't work. And that's really information that's coming from their trusted sources, but that doesn't mean it's the truth. Because the truth is, as someone who participated in a clinical trial, I understand how the trials work and that these vaccines do work. We have a lot of scientific information, but people may reject that information if they don't trust the source. So for them, it's the truth, even though it's actually not true. Yeah. And you're so creative too in your approach to how you interact with a lot of the communities. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Before we went live, you were just telling the story about some new COVID content that you've been creating around um, how to help people understand what's in the vaccines. Uh, so I hope it's okay I'm asking that question. Yeah, but no. I'd love you to talk about that a little bit because I think it's a very a creative approach to kind of um, connecting with communities and things that they use every day or things that are familiar to them. Absolutely. I think this is one of the, the missed opportunities across the health sector. We spend a lot of time creating fancy pamphlets and brochures and flyers and directing people to our beautiful websites. Uh, but the information is actually not that interesting or relatable for people. So I started paying attention to where people get information and what sorts of things they're really connected to. And one thing I know is myself included, people are very connected to the foods they eat. And we all have things we love. In my case, my guilty pleasure is Snickers. So as we've been doing these Ask the Doctor sessions virtually and out in the community, just asking people if they have questions about the pandemic or about vaccines, one of the most common questions is, well, what's in the vaccine? And then they might follow up and say, well, I don't want to take the vaccine because I want to know what I'm putting in my body. And I've heard this so many times and I realized, hmm, how many things do people actually eat? People eat a lot of things and they have no idea what's in them. So I thought I would just go to the corner store and 
you know, pick up some very popular items. And, and I made a couple of video shorts to make the point. You know, I, I say, people are telling me they don't want to take the vaccine because they don't know what's in it and they want to know what they're putting in their body. So I have some very popular food items here. Let's read the labels and see if people can guess what, you know, which item it is. And so I don't tell them what it is. Mm. I just start reading the label. And of course, some of the ingredients are things I even have no idea about. And then I'll, after I finish reading the label, I'll show the item. And so I did that for a Mountain Dew, even Snickers, my guilty pleasure, uh, Doritos. And you know, now in the grocery stores, they have, they've become very creative with the way they package and present food. So they have now key lime Kit Kats. Oh gosh. <laughs> yes. So I got a key lime Kit Kat. And then I have, you know, these Hostess Snowballs with the coconut. But now mm -hmm. blueberry snowballs. Oh, like interesting. And so it's just kind of a fun activity just to make people think a little bit um, to say, to ask themselves, why are we holding vaccines to a much higher standard than so many other things like medications or even the food we eat? I mean, I think it's because the pandemic has been so politicized and the information keeps changing. And understandably, people are distrustful. But that doesn't mean we don't have um, credible scientific information. Um, I think we just have to do a better job communicating it. Yeah, I drank a lot of Mountain Dew in college, so <laughs> I try too hard not to think about what was in it. <laughs> um, so I think one of the things we've also had a lot of conversation over in the time that we've been working with you is around just getting out in the community to have those conversations and get feedback. And especially from a digital innovation perspective, this is something that you've talked a lot about in terms of a lot of um, people who are building products and other digital solutions for communities, vulnerable populations aren't necessarily getting out into those communities to actually um, get feedback from them. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, why you think people skip that step. Um, and what we can do to, um, you know, encourage and do a little bit more of that within digital innovation. Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's, a, it's an area that's very important to me. And, you know, foundationally, Grapevine Health is about listening to the community. Um, so I, I, I have a lot of feelings about this. Um, I think the fundamental or the primary reason is because it takes time and energy. And I also think sometimes it can feel a little intimidating, especially if you don't have um, relationships with organiz trusted organizations in the community. It might be a little intimidating to think about going out and, and finding the information you need and listening to people. I think some people think they already know. It sounds very rational, you know, the idea we have, like, why wouldn't someone want this or why you know why wouldn't this solve the problem and i i think you have to be intentional and you have to be humble and recognize you might not have all the all the answers because i think a lot of products are being built that aren't being used and i think they're not being used for a reason and that is they have the develop developers or the people who are creating these products have not taken the time and it can slow down your process. But I like the saying, you know, go slow to go fast. 
because I think once you have the information, you can really uh, move forward a lot faster um, than and, and have a better product than going fast only to find out at the end that you've created something that's really not going to benefit people. Um, the final, final thing I'll say about this, though, is sometimes I think innovators think they have the insight because they know people who might be proximal to the community but they're not talking directly to the community they're using a mediator to get information and i think that's okay but only to a point i think you can't do that in isolation i think it's important to get information from different uh sources so let's say there is a food pantry that is very um trusted in the community very well known and so maybe a developer knows the person who founded that food pantry and they call them up and say, hey, we're building X product. What do you think about this? What are the issues you're seeing? And then the food pantry founder can give their perspective. But what I'm saying and my position is that innovator needs to talk directly to the person who's picking up the food at the pantry to understand the product I'm building, will it work for you? If not, why not? What would you need? Because I think the answers will be different. And so if people just take the time and find partners who can help them get proximal to community, I think they'd be much more successful. Yeah, I agree. And I think it can certainly be intimidating. Um, I can certainly relate to that. And I think too, I get the sense that a lot of people fear you know, they're entering a community that they're maybe not a part of. And so how do they do that in a way that's respectful and compassionate and, you know, isn't tokenizing um, to the members of the community that are talking about? And I think that you're so good about really uh, having very authentic conversations with people too. You have your Dr. Lisa on the street series um, that I've seen a lot. And, you know, we've done some uh, series with you as well, but I guess, would you have any advice for people that maybe feel similar to how I do um, on just how to, you know, approach those conversations and community members in a respectful way? Well, I think the first question, you know, you'd have to ask yourself is, why am I feeling intimidated? And, you know, peel the onion on that a little bit. I think some people have safety concerns that may or may not be valid. It could just be perceptions. And there is a perception, I'll just be blunt. There is a perception that because you're poor or you live in a poor neighborhood, it's automatically unsafe and unwelcoming. And actually that's not true. I mean, I, I live in an underserved area of Washington DC and my neighbors are wonderful people. Sure, we have lots of social challenges. We have gun violence, but we also have neighborly people who, you know, care about and love their families and want to be healthy and want to have, you know, the same things anybody else has. And so I think if you come into the neighborhood with that perspective that this is just a human connection I'm making, I think that's the first step. The second thing is, I think people have notions that the community will not welcome them or they're seen as interlopers. And that's because so often, especially when it comes to research, the relationship is very transactional and they're very pedestrian when they come into the community. So they might show up at a meeting to check a box and say, oh, we were there and then leave a few flyers. 
but the community can can sense whether or not a person is genuine or an organization is genuine. And so the first time you come into the community, a good thing to do, maybe even the first few times, is just to listen and ask people what kind of support they need. But this is getting back to my point about, you see how it takes time. And I think a lot of people in the innovation sector or innovation innovators want to go so quickly. You know, the, the mantra is like, go fast and break things. But you have to take the time to nurture the relationship and you have to do it genuinely and authentically because people can sense that. And so it's not that, that people are unwelcome in the community. They want helpers as well as, as much as anyone else. And they can sense if you're truly being a helper, or if you're being opportunistic or just, you know, this is purely a transaction so that I can get what I need. And never mind what you need. And so yeah. this just takes time and energy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think your point about, you know, are you kind of just checking a box to try to prove that the idea in your head already works? Yeah. Or are you really genuinely kind of exploring the opportunities and the challenges that a community or an individual may face um, to help solve those? So um, I, I want to have an example uh, about this. Um, and yeah, I wrote please. about it a few years ago. I was in uh, one of these. Uh, um, accelerators. It, it was sort of a, a introduction to entrepreneurship and we all had to present our ideas. And there was a gentleman in my group who said, well, he had a bread making company and he wanted to make bread and take it and sell it. He wanted to sell it to people who were um, high income and then take the bread as a donation to the community. And I said, well, what did they say when you told them you wanted to make bread? Have they tasted your bread? He said, oh no, I haven't, I haven't figured out a way. That's what he said. I haven't figured out a way to take the bread to them. And I said, well, why not? He says, I don't know anyone. So this is a perfect, perfect example. You have to do the work to create the connections in the, and it's, and it's usually only one person removed. It's not like you have to talk to three or four people to try and find a connection to the people you're trying to serve. So. Yeah, that's a great example. So I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier. Um, and we had a question on social media and I'll tie it to that in a moment. But uh, when we were talking about um, health literacy and the impact that then that has on people's ability to kind of understand and use health information, but then I think tying that to um, digital solutions, and we've especially seen with the impacts of COVID-19 that everything's gone virtual. I know we're kind of probably sick of talking about it at this point, but um, it's had a huge impact on the way we access healthcare. And so I'm curious about you know, what that impact has been on vulnerable populations and uh, specifically then the tie-in from like a health literacy impact and what you see the tie between health literacy and utilization of kind of telehealth and other solutions like that. Yeah, so you're, you've just sort of circled in on my sweet spot here. <laughs> um, so first, let me just talk about the, the impact of digital, what we've seen uh, during the course of the pandemic. I think there is a notion that because underserved communities may not have broadband and they may not have the fastest internet speeds or the most um, sort of the sexiest internet plans, they are disconnected or unconnected. And that's actually not true. We conducted a study a couple years ago 
to assess the, the availability of smartphones in the Medicaid population. And 96% of them had a smartphone. And we also asked them, well, what are you doing with your phone? Do you ever do anything related to health on your phone? Do you have a health app on your phone? And they don't. Most, most of them don't. And that's because we aren't doing our part, I think, to engage them. So people have access to smartphones. And so during the pandemic, this was reinforced when I practiced telemedicine over the summer because people actually could do video visits, but a lot of them actually chose not to do video visits. So it's not that they didn't have the technology or the capacity because they could do it on their phone, even with the speeds they had, but some of them just opted, opted not to. Then there are the seniors, a lot of the seniors, the take home message there was that they really just needed a helper because they have access to technology. Most of them have smartphones. They just don't have the digital literacy. So they don't know how to use their phones. And so that I think is also a really important area for us to focus on. How do we help teach people to maximize the use of their phone to improve their health? As for the connection between health literacy and digital access. For us, this is about reaching people where it's convenient and where they're already paying attention. So if there is a way for us to put a video in front of someone that might make them think or make them recognize, oh, wow, I've had that question too, or always, hmm, I was kind of scared to go to the doctor, but now that I've you know, seen Joe talk about his stroke, okay, I'll go to the doctor. So I think for us, this, um, connection between helping people understand and demystifying health information by communicating with them through the technology they're using, I think is really powerful. And, and that's what we're actually working on, you know, in the upcoming um, months to really to um, de derive some proof points. And also we're, we'll be working with a couple of health plans so that we can also attach a return on investment figure to this, which I think is really a game changer. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is a really important intersection, the health literacy and the technology. It's also how you scale these interventions we've been working on. Yeah. I think you mentioned at the beginning that um, a meeting with a provider could be intimidating sometimes uh, just because of the language they may use or it's someone that seems so much smarter than you. And I've seen some interesting examples too of how the technology can kind of level that playing field mm. a little bit. There was a woman that we were speaking to once who um, really loved texting with her provider because it gave her the opportunity to think about her response and not have to sit there and kind of be on the, you know, she could look up words she didn't understand and kind of think about how she wanted to respond or what questions she wanted to ask. So yeah. I think there's really interesting applications of both virtual health and then some of the other kind of texting and email um, type modalities that we have as well. Yeah, and you know, I really appreciate the, um, some of the waivers that were implemented during the pandemic because it's enabled us to see how efficient or effective or how acceptable it is uh, to text with, with patients or with community members. And so that's something we're very interested in because text messaging is the least common tech denominator. Everyone doesn't want to download an app. Some people say it takes up too much space on my phone, but they'll send a text message. And so uh, we, we've just been notified 
of a, a successful SBIR grant application, and we're going to be working on uh, building a text-based solution uh, to test out some of these things. So stay tuned on that. Yeah, that's super exciting. So we've also been working together on a project uh, we've been calling Community Inspired Digital Innovation Conversations, where you have been taking your Dr. Lisa on the street um, and exploring some different health topics. And with the goal of this really being to help further the conversation with the industry around a lot of the topics that we're talking about today as well. Um, I'm curious if uh, through that project, if you know, there's any kind of learnings that you've had um, as we've been having a lot of the conversations with community members on some of those health topics that you'd like to share. So many, so many, <laughs> Bethany. But I'll just, I'll just name two um, sort of broad issues. One is, and first just let me say, um, I appreciate the opportunity to work with you all on this because it's been so humbling and reinforcing and validating that we need to be working in this space around health literacy and digital. Um, the first one is we, we did a video um, assessing people's perspectives about mental health. What is it? What does it mean? What do you do? What do you do if you have a mental health issue? And what was so humbling to me was that people don't have the language to describe mental health and people don't think about it. We don't talk about it enough. And we talk about it so little that people can't even recognize what it is. And most people told, when we said, well, what is mental health? We heard it's either Alzheimer's or depression. Hmm. Or we heard, well, I'm not sure. Nobody really talks about that. And I think especially now with the impact we're seeing on people's uh, mental health and mental wellness during the pandemic, we really, need, and this is mental health month. I don't know if you knew that. Yes. <laughs> but we need to be really emphasizing uh, the importance of a focus on mental wellness to improve people's outlook and, and balance out some of the stress and trauma that's been imposed on us all. Uh, over the last year. Um, the second one, and I'll just tell you a story. It's, um, we were shooting the, uh, the access video for you. And there was a woman who waited patiently for us to finish the video. And she walked over to me and said, are you a doctor? We had a, the organ model out. So she was drawn, you know, over to see, well, what is that? And I said, yes, I am a doctor. And she said, well, I've just been discharged from the hospital. They told me I have blood clots in my lungs, but I still feel like I'm having trouble breathing and I don't know what to do. They didn't tell me what to do. So mm -hmm. right there on the street corner, she shows me her discharge paperwork and we both realize they didn't give her a follow-up appointment. They didn't link her to a healthcare provider and they didn't answer all of her questions or if they thought they did, they didn't answer it in a way that made her feel comfortable. And she was really afraid and said she might actually go back to the emergency department. So you can see how our failure to uh, help people understand what's happening with them and then help them navigate to the next, you know, to the next uh, resource, especially after something like a healthcare discharge or a hospital discharge, it's so essential. And so that was, that's a moment that will stay with me just like the moment I told you about the guy who said, how does someone like me access someone like you? Like those are, those are moments that just sort of pierce my soul and make me realize 
there's really a need for what we're doing at Grapevine Health. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it makes me very sad too, right? What kind of, we don't have a humanistic health system, do we, if we treat people like that? Yeah, it's, I remember the woman from the video you're referencing because her anxiety was palpable oh. even across video. And it's, uh, I'm grateful though for the opportunities that you have to interact with the, all these encounters that you just have literally on the street because <laughs> you are accessible and available to people. Because I think that you have probably uh, changed that woman's life with the uh, just kind of connections that you were able to help her make and everything. So um, Dr. Lisa, I learned something from you every time I have a conversation with you. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I wish that we had more time, um, but thank you for everyone for listening and sending in your questions uh, to learn more about our initiatives, programs, services, and ways to give at Providence. Or if you're looking for medical care, you can visit providence.org. And for more information and resources from the Digital Innovation Group at Providence, you can get, visit providence-dig.org and check out Dr. Lisa and her work at grapevinehealth.com. And follow us on social media at Providence Health System for LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and under Providence on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bethany. Nice to be here.